This is Strange Assembly episode 293, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. I'm here today to talk about the latest Dungeons & Dragons release, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Okay, well, I guess it would be tied with the Dungeon Master's Screen Wilderness Kit, but we're just talking about Tasha's Cauldron of Everything today. Before you listen on, please don't forget to check us out at www.strangeassembly.com. Subscribe or leave a review for the show on the Apple Podcasts app or iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. It helps other people find the show. In the spirit of Xanathar's Guide to Everything, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything is another new, not a campaign setting, not a campaign or adventure, but just book full of options for Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. Now, there are a variety of things in this book, but what I'm going to spend the most time on in this review is the new options and subclasses for that are available for every single character class, including the Artificer, so that everything else is feats, it's spells, it's magic items, there's DM advice, but just as with Xanathar's Guide to Everything, there's a lot of new character class options, and, and just like with Xanathar's Guide to Everything, this really is a must-buy for Dungeons & Dragons players. But before we get to where the content of the book is, I, I think it is worth asking, who is Tasha, who has a cauldron of everything that we are, are seeing here? And unlike with Xanathar, it's a little bit harder to provide a concrete answer to that. Tasha, which is not her only name, But Tasha originates in the Greyhawk campaign setting. She's been around in some form for decades at this point. However, she isn't collected in a lot of material, and the material that there is is not entirely consistent. But she's a witch or wizard, and in past presentations, she's primarily been depicted as an evil character. She penned tomes like the Demonomicon, she consorted with demons in all the different ways that one might consort with demons, that sort of thing. However, that's not how she is depicted in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Here, she is deliberately portrayed in a more ambiguous fashion. Certainly not good, but also certainly not a force for cosmic evil. Her primary alignment seems to be snarky flippant, perhaps, right? Because the the function of her notes in this book is to make snarky and sometimes humorous comments about magic items, various types of characters, that sort of thing. For me, Tasha's most noticeable accomplishment is having a really old D&D wizard spell with her name in it. And, And that appears in fifth edition, right? as Tasha's hideous laughter. But that spell first appeared back in the early 80s. It was in a normal book in the AD&D Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition Player's Handbook as Tasha's uncontrollable hideous laughter, joining the likes of Bigby's Crushing Hand, Morden Caden's Disjunction, Ivard's Black Tentacles, and Leoman's Tiny Hut. 
Uh, and she gets a few more of these here in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. But I do like the shout out to Tasha because it's a named character from long, long ago. And I am also from long, long ago. Uh, but she's also not a character who really has much of a firm anything in the way of history. So there's your uh, fake history lesson for the day. So now about character class options. Like I said, that's, that's what most of this is going to be, character class options. There's a lot of consistencies about what you'll get here for the character classes. Of course, every class gets a couple of new subclass options, maybe three, but there's at least two. Oh, wait, sorry, wizard, not you. Then every class gets optional abilities. And just every time I say optional during this review, just imagine air quotes around the word optional. I think that that optional is really kind of just there for the benefit of your grumpy dungeon masters who don't really want to change anything because every player is going to want to have these options. Some of them matter a little, some of them matter a lot, but these are things like every spell casting class gets a few existing spells added onto its list. Things from the player's handbook that were originally only for other classes would now be on that class's list. Every applicable class gets the option to swap out class abilities. So, you know, like every four levels, you get to swap your fighting style for a different one, or you get to change out one of your cantrips. That sort of thing. Most of the classes get new options for class features where applicable, again, like the different fighting style options. And most classes also just get a minor extra thing, like here's a feature that gives you a different way to use channel divinity. There are a few places where there are new class features that replace existing class features, and the primary place that you'll see that is the ranger, which effectively gets a heavy revamp here in Tasha's cauldron of everything. Overall, there's a lot of decent options in Tasha's cauldron of everything, and a few that are quite potent, including a, a relative lot of things that grant extra attacks or add damage every round. There's a sub-theme of psionic options, and I'm going to go all over all of those for each of the class. When I do that, you'll notice that I'm almost entirely looking at low levels. In my experience, the vast majority of Dungeons & Dragons play comes at earlier levels, so don't look for anything here that's going to talk about the utility of abilities that you get at level 14 or level 20 or something like that. From this lens, I think that the particularly attractive options are available for the Artificer, the Barbarian, the Cleric, the Ranger, and the Warlock. And, and I'll just go through those in alphabetical order, starting with the Artificer, who you can exclude from all of those sweeping pronouncements I made about what every class gets, because unlike all of the other classes, Artificer was not in the base class. What you're getting here in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything is basically just what you already got in Eberron Rising from the Last War. So, I mean, if you don't have Eberron, the Artificer will be new to the books that you have available to you, but I'm not going to go over what an Artificer does here. However, there is one new subclass for the Artificer called the Armorer, and it's really good. The Armorer, you know, instead of getting an artillery piece or something like that, gets a suit of armor, right? And it's probably going to be as heavy as they can afford to get because they gain heavy armor proficiency, they can ignore armor strength requirements, and their armor serves as their spellcasting focus. The armor will also 
include a built-in weapon, and when attacking with that weapon, the armorer gets to use their intelligence for both the attack and damage bonuses. So, right, basically they can dump strength, they can dump decks, they can just load up on heavy armor. That armor can either be guardian armor or infiltrator armor, and they can switch back and forth between the two. The guardian armor has a built-in melee weapon that lets you effectively draw aggro by imposing penalties on enemies who attack someone other than you, and it can grant you temporary hit points. The infiltrator armor has a built-in ranged weapon. It increases your speed by 5 feet, and it negates the armor's disadvantage to stealth checks, because Again, you should be wearing armor that's heavy enough that gives you that would otherwise give you disadvantage on stealth checks. Now, that infiltrator's range weapon has an interesting clause that it does extra damage on the first hit, and that's going to be relevant because, like your melee classes, the artificer is going to give you the extra attack at fifth level. So, again, I mean, if you don't have Eberron Rising from the Last War, this is an entirely new class. Even if you do, there's a powerful combat-focused subclass for the Artificer here. Uh, Next up is the Barbarians. The Barbarians' optional bonuses are more skill proficiencies and getting to move a little bit as part of the bonus action to enter Rage. It gets two new subclasses, the Path of the Beast and the Path of Wild Magic. The Beast Barbarian can transform when they're taking on animalistic features when they Rage, choosing one of several options each time. At third level, you get options that will enhance or negate attacks. You might be able to heal when you're dealing damage. You might get to attack twice. You might get to increase your armor class. The sixth level options provide out-of-combat bonuses, movement-related. You can either swim, or you can climb, or you can super jump. The structure has the flexibility of the path of the totem warrior. Its third-level combat options are probably aren't quite as good as the Path of the Berserker's just flat-out extra attack, but they're still good, and the sixth-level power here is much better than the Path of the Berserker. And then there's just the power of being able to choose the versatility of what you need at this moment, which makes this a strong option for a class that already has strong options. The other Barbarian subclass is the Path of Wild Magic, Their primary shtick is that when they enter Rage, they get a random wild magic effect, right? That would make sense. They're called the Path of Wild Magic. It's probably the most generous wild magic table you've ever seen because there's no, nothing happens. There's no, a cloud of butterflies emerges from your ears. Sometimes it'll immediately do damage. Sometimes it grants a movement ability for the duration of the Rage. Sometimes it inflicts extra damage each round. But... There's nothing on the table that's that much better than just the consistent benefits you get to choose for the other barbarian paths. So you're losing control and not getting a lot more upside for it. And I I feel like the wild magic barbarian is probably weaker than the other options you have available. And note, of course, anytime I say that an option is weaker, I'm talking mechanically, you may love the flavor, which is a great reason to play a, a, a class. But you know, I, and I'll say that I like the flavor for some of these, but hey, you know, that's that's just a personal thing. After the Barbarian, we've got the, the Bard. The Bard gets new spells on the spell list. They get Mass Healing Word if you're playing that sort of role in your party. You'll notice that this is one of the few classes where I'm going to say anything about what the specific spells were that, that were added. They're not 
usually that exciting. It's not like anybody's like, oh, all of a sudden I have some big new damage or healing spell where I didn't have any option to do that before, right? The optional new bard feature is not a big one. It allows your inspiration dice to be used to enhance a healing spell. There are two new colleges, the College of Creation and the College of Eloquence. The Creation Bard's inspiration dice provide extra benefits depending on how they're being used. So for example, if someone uses them on a saving throw, they'll also gain temporary hit points. The Creation Bard can create mundane items from nothing, so no worrying about who forgot to bring the torches, although they only last a certain amount of time, so forgetting to bring chalk and then summoning that probably isn't going to work because it might have gone away by the time you need to go back through the maze. At 6th level, the Creation Bard gains a pet, whatever random object was around, right? You get to animate it. It is probably mostly just going to be a, I use my bonus action to make it attack in combat. The Eloquence Bard is simply good with words. They can be the ultimate face because they can ignore bad rolls on persuasion and deception checks. At 6th level, they can communicate with anyone regardless of language. The other aspects are less exciting to me, so I don't feel like, to me, you're not picking a lot of exciting stuff up for in combat. At 6th level, the, the other ability that I like here, which is your inspiration dice won't go away if they're used to enhance a roll and the roll still fails. The, the person still gets to hold on to that inspiration die. Next up, we have Cleric. The Cleric's new features is the ability to use Channel Divinity to recover spell slots. Uh, You'll see that again in the Paladin. There's also a replacement feature available for the Cleric. The replacement feature is either going to replace the Divine Strike or the potent spell casting that you were getting from your domain. So Divine Strike is extra weapon damage, and it gets higher as you get up to 14th level. Potent spell casting is extra damage on your cantrips of your wisdom bonus. The radiant damage that you get extra here is going to give you a bonus on either your cantrips or your weapon attacks. And at 8th level, when you get it, that bonus is going to be as high as or, or, or possibly higher than, on average, what you would have been getting. Now, if you get up to high enough levels where you're like, I have a plus 6 wisdom bonus, or uh, you know, you hit 14th level and it doubles the divine strike, those are going to start to shine there. But again, I, most campaigns don't get that high. So for most players in most games, I think your extra radiant damage here is probably just going to be better than what you were getting from your domain out of the normal domain abilities as a cleric. There are three new domains offered up here, Order, Peace, and Twilight. Order starts off well, gaining heavy armor proficiency and another skill proficiency, right? so you can tank a little bit. Plus, you can grant allies a reaction attack when you target them with a spell. Oh, not only do I heal you, but now you get to take an extra swing. That's good. But after that, it gets weaker because it starts to focus on like intimidating and mind-controlling people, which are not usually particularly potent options. Like at 6th level, you can cast a spell as a bonus action, which would be extremely potent if it was broader, but it can only be used for enchantment spells. 
you know, I mean, gosh, give me, give me transmutation, give me necromancy, give me some evocation, give me something. But in, enchantment again, you're. It's a lot of these. I'm casting on the other side. They get a saving throw to negate it. If you like that sort of controly thing, it's going to do what you want. But for me, eh. The Peace Cleric, on the other hand, is a great support character. They can create this bond amongst the members of the party that lets every character get plus 1d4 to one roll of their choice per turn as long as they're near enough to each other. The Peace Cleric can also then start zipping around the battlefield, ignoring opportunity attacks and delivering extra healing, and allows characters to teleport around to take hits for each other. This is pretty nifty stuff there. The Twilight Cleric, also a potent addition. They gain heavy armor, like that order cleric does. They also gain martial weapon proficiency. They have long-range dark vision, like hundreds of feet, and they can, for a certain amount of time every day, share that with the rest of the party. I am in love with characters having dark vision, honestly. They can also provide an initiative boost to one character in the party, and they can create this sphere of giving people temporary hit points. And and you get to choose. Like you can you don't have to give it to the to enemies that are in there. And they can do all of that at second level. Right? That you don't have to wait to sixth level to do any of that. Really like the Twilight Cleric. Next up we have the Druid. The Druid's Op, you know, optional new feature is that you can use up one of your wild shape uses to temporarily summon a familiar. Yeah. There are two new druid circles, stars and wildfire. This also includes the circle of spores, but that is a reprint from Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica. So I'm not going to worry about it here. The stars druid can spam guiding bolt. I mean, not, not as a cantrip, but multiple times a day, not using up a spell slot. And They have multiple options every time they assume their starry form, which they do by using using up a wild shape usage, of course. Most notably, their archer form allows them to make a radiant damage range spell attack as a bonus action every round, while the chalice form will enhance all healing spells. Wildfile druids get to add multiple useful new spells to their list, including burning hands and cure wounds. And then as they level up, they get more fire damage spells and more healing spells. So this is one of those ones where the spells that you're getting from your your circle, I think, could really matter. They can also expend uses of their wild shape to summon a wildfire spirit pet, which, again, is mostly going to be, hey, bonus action, attack. The fighter picks up new options for its fighting style, blind fighting, interception, superior technique, thrown weapons, and, and unarmed. And these help the sort of things, right? Like blind fighting lets you notice things when they're nearby to you, even if they're invisible. Superior techniques makes you gets you like a little mini battle master ability. Thrown weapons and unarmed help you with those sort of things. Interception is probably the most interesting to just your generic first level character. I mean, if you're doing sword and board, it lets you use your shield to intercept damage and reduce the damage that would be taken by one of your allies, so it lets you really play up that tank role. There's also some more maneuvers that you can use with the Battlemaster. There are two new martial archetypes, the Psy Warrior and the Rune Knight. The Psy Warrior, this is the first one that you'll see, as I mentioned earlier, there's a bit of a psionics sub-theme here, and this is the first place you you see it. The Psy Warrior and a lot of these psionic classes will, although not all of them, will, will give you dice that you can use to do stuff. 
in in right kind of like you can have bardic inspiration dice or the battle master's dice and they'll go up as you gain higher levels here for the psi warrior you can spend those dice to negate damage increase damage or move objects with their mind at seven level you also get the ability to enhance your jumps or just make a ranged telekinetic attack the rune knight gets to they, they get what they need to be able to make runes like a craft skill and they can speak giant and then they can add enhancement runes to their items. You can do this with two items at 3rd level, three at 7th level. You get a few more options of what your runes can be at 7th level. Most of the runes provide one static ability and one activated ability. Other than gaining dark vision, which, as I mentioned earlier, I like, I always like, the static abilities are fairly situational or related to things that fighters don't do that much, like buffed ability to use sleight of hand or animal handling. The once-per-rest abilities that they have, some of those are a little weak. The best one is the Fire Runes ability, which lets you restrain someone if they fail their save and then causes constant fire damage around. Uh, But in addition to those runes, fighters will probably also like the ability to, a few times a day, become large and deal an extra 1d6 damage on every single melee hit. And then, at, at 7th level, they also gain the ability to, a few times a day, force re-rolls of successful attacks. Interestingly enough, I, I think, other than the fact that I get to slap Dark Vision on my character, I suspect that some of these abilities that are not as intrinsically tied to the rune aspect of it are going to be the more consistently useful. The Monk gets four new class features. Four, including the probably the only one in the book that I would not be enthused about letting into a campaign. And that one, which is called Dedicated Weapon, allows the monk to pick basically any sort of normal weapon and have it count as a monk weapon, with all the mechanical benefits that entails for their abilities. I'm unenthusiastic about this one because it seems to really chip at the way at the feeling of distinctiveness of the monk. Now you can just be another character swinging a longsword, or another character shooting a bow. The other features that they get relate to spending key points. If you take an action to spend key points, it will let you make an extra attack. Basically, it'll let you do your offhand attack when you take a key action that for something that's other than attack. It gives you an inefficient way to spend key points to heal, and then it lets you spend key points for a post-roll bonus on your attack rolls. The two new monk subclasses are the Way of Mercy and the Way of the Astral Self. A Mercy monk gains skill proficiencies related to healing. They can use healing hands by spending key points or by sacrificing one of their attacks in a flurry of blows. And conversely, they can spend key points to do extra damage, you know, hands of harm. Starting at 6th level, they can either cure or inflict certain conditions when using their healing hands or hands of harm. So it's not just I'm dealing extra necrotic damage when I hit you, I'm poisoning you too. That sort of stuff. The Astral Self Monk initially gains the ability to spend a key point to summon Astral Arms, which can be used to make unarmed strikes with reach, and they get bonuses to attack and damage based on the character's wisdom. At 6th level, the Astral Self Monk can spend a key point to summon an Astral Mask, which grants several abilities, a, a better-than-dark vision, bonuses to insight and intimidation checks, and a 
probably limited use ability to manipulate the volume at which they speak. The Paladin rate, you get more spells and you get more fighting styles. Most of those are shared with the fighter. There's also the Blessed Warrior, which lets you get a couple of cleric cantrips. And, and you just get cleric cantrips. It's not like you get the cleric cantrip and you can use it once a day. And then as you level up, it lets you swap them out as, as they get exchanged. I like that one. Like the cleric, that like I mentioned earlier, there's this class feature to let you use channel divinity to regain an expended spell slot. The paladin gets two new subclass options, the Oath of Glory and the Oath of the Watchers. The Glory Paladin can channel to become really good at athletics and acrobatics, get extra jumping, and enhanced ability to push, pull, lift, carry stuff, and so forth. Or you can channel after making a Divine Strike to grant temporary hit points to the team. Personally, my favorite thing here is the 7th level features Enhanced Walking Speed, which applies to anyone who starts their turn near you. I don't know if that's enough pizzazz to make the Glory Paladin exciting. Ooh, we can move a little bit further on Overland and close distance a little bit. I, I like it, but I, I, I like it most when I get to 7th level, which is a weight. That's similar with the Watcher Paladin, although it's more extreme there. Because, honestly, the, the channel options you get at 3rd level with the Watcher are underwhelming. Like, bonuses to non-physical saving throws and an extra planar abjuration ability that really only hits a limited number of foes. Now, at 7th level, they can grant their whole team an initiative bonus. And that's really nice, but again, like even more so with the Watcher than the Glory Paladin, I feel like I'm just like have to wait too long with the subclass to get something that really excites me. Next up, the Ranger. So, right... Rangers are widely, and I think correctly, considered the weakest of the character classes. Uh, anything you can do, the fighter can do better, or words to that effect. So it's hard for me to see the quote-unquote optional class features here as something other than an effort at a revamped ranger. Or an unchained ranger for you Pathfinder fans out there. Tired of seeing that natural explorer class feature doing mostly nothing? Well, then you'll be happy to replace it with more languages, a doubled proficiency bonus for one of your skills at first level, and then at sixth level, your speed increases by five, and also, in addition to being a walking speed, it's a climb speed and a swim speed. Don't like having to pick a favorite enemy so you can gain a largely irrelevant bonus to attacking them? Well, how about getting the favorite foe class feature, which triggers whenever when you hit an enemy, allowing you to mark them and then get extra damage every time you hit them with a subsequent attack? Tired of waiting until 10th level so you can gain the ability to hide out of combat? Maybe you would instead like to turn invisible as a bonus action. How's that for an upgrade? Plus, the Beastmaster archetype from the core book gets its own do-over with a primal beast pet that beats the snot out of any ranger's companion. And that's on top of new features like a spellcasting focus, adding old spells to your list, and more fighting style, including the their version of gaining cantrips, which is the druidic warrior, which gives them access to a couple of druid cantrips. And of course, there are a couple of new archetypes, both of which add extra damage to your attacks. The fey wanderer adds psychic damage to your attacks, and the swarm keeper adds piercing damage to your attacks. 
The Fey Wanderer also has the ability to be your group's face, gaining an additional skill proficiency and adding wisdom bonus to any charisma check. The Swarm Keepers, on the other hand, can do things like use their swarm to pick them up and fly. Regardless, this is just a big, big boon for Rangers here with a do-over on some of their sad, sad base class features from the core book. Any DM who doesn't let your poor Ranger immediately switch to using these supposedly optional features is just mean. Feel free to send them to me and leave nasty comments if they uh, don't appreciate that. But seriously, let your players use these. The Ranger needs help. This is help. Yay. Next up, we have the Rogue. The Rogue gets a single optional feature available at third level, which is to basically get advantage on ranged attack rolls if the rogue isn't doing anything else that turn. That's handy because there are some combats where the rogue kind of gets stuck there taking single crossbow shots while everyone is mixing it up with a bunch of bonus attacks in melee. The two rogue archetypes are the Phantom and, if you're a fan of the X-Men character Psylocke, the Soul Knife. The Phantom is, for me, I, I gotta say conceptually off-putting. You're harnessing the souls of the dead and not in a nice, like, making friends with them sort of way. Uh, you get an extra switchable skill proficiency, which represents you learning from the dead. You can inflict necrotic damage on a second target whenever you inflict sneak attack damage as you, you know, make the souls wail in anguish. And much later, you can actually capture the souls of the dying, which you can use to inflict damage, destroy to inflict damage on people, and you can interrogate them, that sort of thing. It's not that it's bad, I just find it unappealing. The Soul Knife gets one of Tasha's best lines, which is, uh, I also have the ability to manifest my thoughts in ways that cut people. I call this power words. But, in addition to that line, the Soul Knife gets double attacks with their Psychic Blades, right? You can do one attack with the Psychic Blade, ranged or melee, and then make a second one as a bonus action, although the damage is a bit low. And they get some psionic dice to help out with failed skill checks, which have the nice bonus that right, if you spend the psionic dice to try to succeed at the skill check and it still fails, you get to keep the die. Yep. So, sorcerers. Sorcerers get, as usual, some old spells are new again. They get a couple of meta magic options. You can you know, make your cell a spell, a seeking spell, and you get the ability to spend a sorcery point to re-roll a d20. There are two new sorcerous origins, the Aberrant Mind and the Clockwork Soul. The Aberrant Mind is another psionic subclass, which, again, like I've said, a bit of a, a sub-theme right here. They're associated with the Far Realms, or you know, the Astral Plane, or Mind Flares, that sort of thing. Right away, you get a form of telepathy, you get to tag certain spells as psionic spells, and then later you can cast them using sorcery points instead of spell slots, and you, when you cast these spells with sorcery points, then you're, you cast them without any sort of material or somatic components, right, because it's a psionic ability. The other one, the Clockwork Soul, I love the flavor of this. I love that it channels Mechanists and Modrons, because I, honestly, because I associate those so much with Planescape, and I love Planescape to death. And they get a first-level ability to negate advantage or disadvantage a few times a day, and that's nothing to sneeze at. At sixth level, the Clockwork Soul can also create a damage prevention ward around themselves and their allies. 
I would note that neither the Aberrant Mind nor the Clockwork Soul gets anything particularly exciting from the subclass to add to their spell list. Our next, as we've got our entering our, our big spell casting finale here, we've got the Warlock. They have the usual, okay, more spells, more options for class features. There's only one new Pact Boon, the Pack of the Talisman. And there are seven new invocations, several of them only for the Pact of the Talisman, but other ones specific to other packs or just generically available. The Talisman Pact Boon lets you add one, a 1d4 to a failed roll a few times today. My personal favorite new Eldritch Invocation is the Investment of the Chainmaster, which is usable only if you have the Pact of the Chain, which juices up a familiar. So if you have that non-flying familiar, you want to zip around and do other nifty things, here's your choice. There are two new otherworldly patrons, the Fathomless and the Genie. They're both good. The spell list for the Fathomless includes Thunderwave. And it's Thunderwave's not stupendous, but it's a first-level area of attack spell, which is always nice for the Warlock, right? That's clearly something I think that people look for in a patron. The Fathomless also can generate tentacles a few times a day, which then get to attack every single round as a bonus action. That's great. I also, although I probably like it more than it is good, I, I like, I love, honestly, because I love this sort of thing, I love that they can breathe underwater and they get a swim speed at 6th level, to go with the not as important, they get cold damage, but more importantly, those tentacles they summon, they can now take a reaction. You can use your reaction to reduce incoming damage. Altogether, the Fathomless seems like a really, really potent new Warlock option. The Genie, too, not bad. So you have four sets of spell editions available because you get one set of five new spells just from your patron being a Genie, but then you pick a type of Genie and that gives you another four. Again, there's a couple of options that include a first-level AoE. And the Afridi is probably the best of these. This is not new for a Warlock Patron to be able to do this, but it's, it's something that makes a Warlock Patron good, so it gives you another option to do this. But the Afridi-type Genie, you get Burning Hands at first level, you get Fireball for a third-level spell. It's not shabby, but that's not it, of course, right? Because that's just the spell list. You get a Vessel... Right? I mean, the classic thing would be, it's a lamp. And you can do cute things like hide in the lamp. At a higher level, you can hide your whole team in the lamp. But what you're probably most interested is that on your first successful attack roll every turn, you will get bonus damage based on the type of genie that you have. Like So bonus damage on your first successful hit every single turn, in addition to great adds to your spell list, and... At 6th level, you start to be able to fly a little bit, and you gain damage resistance based on the type of the genie you're working with. So that's, I think the Fathomless and the genie are two really, really nifty new warlock options. The, the warlocks who, who had, it's not like there was no good warlock option before, but I think this is another two good ones. The wizards don't really get any new optional features except for the ability to replace things, right? They, they have some more old old spells that are new for them. They get to like swap out what a cantrip is, that sort of thing every at fourth level. The sort of things that like every single spellcasting class has. And they only get one new arcane tradition because one of the two presented the Blade Singer and its associated cantrips are reprints from the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. That one is the Order of Scribes. 
The Order of the Scribes shtick is to make their spellbook sentient, which allows for swapping spell damage types and, once per day, casting a ritual at the speed of the normal spell. So usually, right, it's going to be one action to cast this ritual. At 6th level, the spellbook's mind can be made manifest, at which point it can sneak around, spy for you, you can see through its senses, so then you can cast spells out of it. So those are the character class options. And that really, really is the bulk of what you're going to be looking for in, in Tasha's Cauldron Everything. It's about 40% of the page count. It's certainly more than 40% of the value of what we're going through here. But it's not the only thing. There's feats. There are 15 new feats. My favorite options include being a chef, because it lets you hand out hit point restoring treats to everybody on your team. Or you can just add a fighting style, because there are some good fighting style options. There are a number of classes here that grant the ability to cast a couple of spells once a day, but that doesn't make me want to give up my stat bonuses. There's also several options where you choose a particular damage type, like slashing or bludgeoning, and it gives you like the partial stat bonus, and you get some sort of bonus every time you use that sort of weapon, and then you get the good bonus if you crit. I was just not enthused enough by the mid-level bonuses, like reduce someone's movement speed. I, it's not that that's nothing, but what I really want is the crit effects, but I, I, I don't, personally, I do not put a lot of stock in abilities that only trigger when I crit. On the spells front, there are fewer than 20 new ones. There are 21 spells in here. There are five cantrips, but four of those cantrips are the repeat Bladesinger ones from the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide that I mentioned a moment ago. They do have a little bit more utility here because those are now included on the Artificer spell list. And as you saw with the Armorer, the Artificer does have some ability to get up close and personal. So there's, there's a little bit more utility, but those are the same spells that they were before. There is one new cantrip. That's Mind Sliver. Feels like it's an obligatory psionic damage cantrip, so you have that as an option. There are only a handful of first or second level spells, and then it really gets into the higher levels. A lot of them are variations on summon. Summon this, summon that, summon the other. This is a Tasha book. There are three new Tasha spells, and that includes a first level spell and a second level spell. So most of the low level spells past the cantrips are Tasha spells. The first level one is Tasha's Caustic Brew, which makes a line attack that can cause ongoing damage. If you have time and people fail their saves, that can really add up. But it doesn't do any damage right now, and it does nothing if they make the deck save. So it can be a bit situational. Tasha's Mind Whip, if they fail their save, and it's one of these rare intelligence saves, so I, I like that we're actually using that, it does an okay amount of damage for a second level spell, and it takes away much of their actions for their next turn. So if you can hit a melee character while they're not in melee, you can basically make them lose their next turn when they fail that intelligence save. But they still will get to take one part of their action. So if they can attack, if they're in a position to attack, they'll still be able to do that. If they fail, they do still take some damage. They don't have the action reduction. It makes that, like Tasha's Caustic Brew, kind of situational. It's hard to see it rising to the top of anyone's list of exciting things. There are magic items. 
there are several of these that are associated with Tasha, although mm, I think they're all artifacts, so not the sort of thing that's going to come up in most campaigns. The most notable of the artifacts to me is the Demonomicon of Igwilv, because that was actually the original name of Tasha, apparently. But like I said, she, she had a lot to do with the fiendish types. And the book is, is handy about that. And those aren't the only artifacts either. So there's a lot of high-level or you know very rare artifact stuff. There is a whole set of tattoos, uh, which I think is a cool new artifact. And that includes like five or so tattoos that are down at common or uncommon. So there's the ability to introduce that pretty early on. Out of the more accessible artifacts, I think the ones that were most noteworthy were the, were in fact, both for clerics or paladins. One of which is the Amulet of the Devout, which gives bonuses to spell attack rolls. On the other one is the is the Guardian Emblem, which allows the negation of critical hits a few times a day. Finally, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything wraps up with some DM advice. To me, the most noteworthy part of the DM advice section was help with using puzzles in games, including sample puzzles and ways to construct that sort of puzzles. I think that's really helpful because puzzles can be really fun in a game, but tuning puzzles so that they are both interesting and an appropriate challenge for the players is a really difficult task. Like my, my thought on puzzles, right, is that no matter how easy or hard you think your puzzle is, you always have to be prepared for the possibility that your players look at it and have no earthly clue what to do with it, or that what you thought was going to be an interesting 15 minutes of thought is over in like 30, right? The latter, honestly, is less of a problem. It's disappointing for you, but good for them. Getting stuck, you really want to have a plan for that. But So any kind of advice to provide on that is good. There are a decent number of pages devoted to exotic environmental hazards, which you'll like if you're a fan of long random tables. It includes a section of advice on session zero about like who the characters are and setting up you know, rules and boundaries and that sort of things. I think it's good that it's there. It's not super long, and it's, it, it's interesting. The, its inclusion in the upteenth D&D 5th edition supplement does feel out of place, considering the prominence that session zeros and things like lines and boundaries have taken on in the role-playing community in the recent years. With that said, right, better late than never. And honestly, I can see why with a game like D&D, there is less of a pressing need to include something like this in the core book, because honestly, there are some D&D groups where like, the first hurdle is, hey, can I get you people to have social interaction between your characters at all? <laughs> right? Because you got to get over that before you can talk about what the lines and boundaries and the limits of that social interaction will be. But the bottom line is that Tasha's Cauldron of Everything contains some fantastic character options, and it contains a lot of them. Now, once you get past those character options, the content in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything isn't that deep. It's not going to blow you away. But that's not really what you're coming to this book for, I don't think. Right? You're coming to it for these new character options, and you are definitely getting a bunch of great stuff here. The Artificer and the Barbarian and the Cleric and the Warlock, I think it like really good new options if you're just looking for power. The other classes may not get big power upgrades, at least it doesn't seem to me. But but even if you don't get 
like a big power upgrade, that doesn't mean that you don't just get more variety. And variety is good. It's more things that can catch your eye and catch your fancy. I especially like that the poor ranger does really get a significant revamp. If you look at the ranger and it makes you sad, you're absolutely going to want to take a look at Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. That's probably, out of all the character options, that's probably the single most important one. But to the extent that there's a thing as a must-buy, this is a must-up-buy for D&D players. You're really going to want to check it out. That's it for this episode. You've been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to this podcast there in the Apple Podcast app or whatever your preferred podcatching service is. If you'd like to get a hold of me to tell me that I'm not on your favorite podcatching service or for whatever reason, you can find me directly. My email is chris at strangeassembly.com and you can find Strange Assembly at the usual social media. We're at Strange Assembly on Twitter. We're facebook.com slash strangeassembly. And, you know, every once in a while, we're even at Strange Assembly on Instagram. But until then, I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.